Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you. Let's open with a word of prayer. Thank you, Lord, uh, for showing us once again that we are made in your image and our emotions can be Christ-like. And you are taking us through those wonderful lessons to show us that you have feelings and are perfect in them, and so there is hope for us here. We thank you for Borgman, his book, uh, and this fellowship this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week, we ended on a very positive note, and that was after we went through the introduction and we talked about how there's two broad strokes, and number one is that your emotions are affected by total depravity, that every aspect of human nature is affected by original sin, including your emotions or affections or feelings. We got to the last uh, sentence in that lesson, and it was something to be hopeful about. In fact, our view of God becomes all the more glorious when we see his perfect emotions, and then we realize, boing, that we are made in his image. So there's hope. (laughs) There's hope. Uh, Today, let's go through chapters 1 and chapter 2. Choose a short one, but essentially... The first part of the book, part one, includes the first three chapters. You're going to love it, but it does lay a foundation. Can be, well, Borgman calls it kind of dry, but I'm not going to sell it that way. Um, but the first part of the book is called a biblical theological foundation for understanding the emotions. <clears throat> so in chapter one, we talk about the character of God. And in chapter 2, we'll be talking about the character of the Son of God and his words. So essentially, how are emotions or feelings present in the Godhead, the Trinity? Next week, uh, talk about the human anthropology of the emotions. That's very good. The child, the philosopher, and the religionist all have one question. What is God like? At the outset, I must acknowledge that this question cannot be answered except to say that God is not like anything. That is, he is not exactly like anything or anybody. A.W. Tozer. So we begin our biblical theological foundation with the starting point of all true theology, God. In the Bible, God displays a variety of emotions. We could even say that emotions are 
part of his divine nature or person. In the history of systematic theology, the mind and the will of God have often been the focus, but the Bible speaks of God's heart, his emotions, and his feelings. The real danger is to impose our emotional experiences on God and thus be guilty of the indictment of Psalm 50, verse 21. You thought I was just like you. Not so fast, my friend. We must keep in mind that God's emotional capacities are both invulnerable and perfect. His emotions are not dependent on anything outside of himself. His feelings are not subject to sinfulness, since he is holy. His emotions are perfectly righteous in their essence and exhibition. Throughout the whole Bible, we see a God who has and expresses perfect emotions. We cannot cover them all, but we will expound some of them and hopefully in the process see God more clearly in the light of his word. So let's talk about, and there are plenty of scripture references here, so you can write them down. I'll wait for you to get to some of them. Well, all of them. You're fast. But we're going to talk about all the emotions God is said to have or express. Number one. First section is about how God loves and delights in his son. The emotions God has for his son are experienced by us when we have children of our own. We experience joy when beholding them, delight in their achievements, pride when they do the right thing. All of these emotions are in God as he explicitly and perfectly loves and delights in his own son. In fact, in Isaiah 42, 1, Yahweh says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now the Hebrew word here is ratzah, and it denotes a sense of being pleased with, taking delight or pleasure in. It is truly hard to imagine how this language could be stripped of emotion. Jesus was baptized. We read, Behold, the voice from heaven said, This is my beloved son. He's all right. No, with whom I am well pleased, Matthew 3, 17. And in John 17, we hear Jesus say, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Christ was loved before the foundation of the world. So, see, just a little glimpse on how God delights in his son. <clears throat> God delights in justice and righteousness. Well, let's go see it. God has a passion for justice and righteousness when his creatures reflect something of his character. By exercising justice and righteousness, he delights in and loves such displays. Psalm 33, 5. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. Isaiah 61, 8. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrong. I will faithfully give them their recompense and... I will make an everlasting covenant with them. Jeremiah 
But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So God delights in his son. He delights in justice and righteousness. He also rejoices in his people. Let's take a look at those. Modern Christian books, sermons, and music overflows with unbiblical perspectives on how worthy we are. Right? However, we also sometimes overcorrect, wanting to underscore human depravity and wickedness. Or make a show of false humility or self-abasement. Right? I always bring up that Monty Python skit. The monks hitting themselves in the head with books. In Deus Requiem. A show of humility. But we may end up missing both the truth about how God feels about his people and God actually values and rejoices in his people. Not because of who we are in ourselves, but because of what he has made us by grace. Reminds me of a song. Casting crowns. Not because of who I am, but because of what you've done. Not because of what I've done, but because of who you are. Listen to the language of love and passion welling up within God for his people, Isaiah 62.5. And try to listen to the emotions, the feelings in these verses, right? For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you and... As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Here's one from Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Try exulting without being emotional. And Jeremiah 32, 39 through 41. I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after them. I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. I will rejoice in doing them good, and I will plant them in this land in faithfulness with all my heart and all my soul. The language throbs with emotional imagery, capturing God's deep feelings for his people. So God delights in his son. He delights in righteousness and justice. He rejoices in his people. Now we're going to see where he takes pleasure in himself, in his will, his grace, and our obedience. You know, psalmists, sages, and apostles celebrate these, ple these pleasures of God. Psalm 115.3, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. When a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Proverbs 16.7, 
He predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. New King James that way. I know you like that. God takes pleasure in his own will. He delights when the obedience and generosity of his people reflect his own grace. Hmm. He takes joy when he sees his grace at work in his people. He overflows with delight in his own perfections as they are perfectly reflected in his son and imperfectly and dimly reflected in us. Okay, so now his son, his justice and righteousness, he exhibits emotions, he rejoices in his people, rejoices in his, his own way, his way, his, himself, his grace. Uh, on the other side of the ledger, God grieves and experiences pain and sorrow. Just as God has joyful feelings, he also has emotions of grief, sadness, sorrow, and even pain. The unrestrained depravity at the time of Noah grieved God. Let's read Genesis 6, 5 through 6. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. When his own people were in constant rebellion, his love for them flowed over in a parental grief. They put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord, and he could bear the misery of Israel no longer. Judges 10.16 And his father heart is unveiled repeatedly. Psalm 78.40 How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. And Psalm 78, 41. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. Okay. You got emotions? You got emotions. God expresses his grief and pain in terms of a husband whose heart has been broken by an unfaithful wife. Ezekiel, Ezekiel 6, 9. <clears throat> I have been broken over their whoring heart that has departed from me and over their eyes that go whoring after their idols. Borgman writes, those who have suffered the awful reality of knowing that their spouse has been with someone else sexually will immediately recognize that the language God chooses carries with it the deepest emotional pain. In these passages, God is grieved. He expresses sorrow and even pain. This language does not take away from God's sovereignty or immutability. Once again, he's perfect in his expression. To interpret these strong emotional words as figures of speech with no emotional reality is to drain them of their meaning and force. The God of the Bible knows what it is to sorrow and grieve. Next, God also experiences anger, wrath, detestation. Well, we're probably more familiar with these verses than some of the positive ones, but although anger is common, I'm sorry, although anger is a common and harmful sin, anger in and of itself is not sinful. Our capacity to be angry is a reflection of the image of God in us. Unfortunately, we rarely know righteous anger. Thankfully, righteous anger is the only anger God knows. So there's hope. God demonstrates his righteous care for the underprivileged. 
by becoming angry when they are oppressed. For instance, in Exodus 22, you shall not mistreat any widow or fatherless child. If you do mistreat them and they cry out to me, I will surely hear their cry and my wrath will burn and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows and your children fatherless. Or Alistair Begg would say wrath. I like the wrath better. He does not hide his detestation for evildoers, liars, and the violent, Psalm 5, 5 through 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. And Psalm 7 says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. There's the word feels. His hatred of certain sins is something he refuses to hold close to his vest. In Psalm 95, you may have read for 40 years, I loathed that generation, loathed that generation, and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart, and they have not known my ways. How about this? There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him, Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to run to evil, a false witness who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among the brothers. Proverbs 6. Malachi writes, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. So even as God loves justice, he despises injustice. And there are certain sins for which God has a special hatred. Hatred. That God can love and hate the same object at the same time hmm, is a reflection of his incomprehensibility and emotional complexity. Back to the positive. God is compassionate. Borgman writes, and I would agree, my wife surpasses me in a multitude of Christian graces and virtues. One of the graces in which she surpasses me is compassion. The Bible does indeed celebrate God's compassion. Exodus 33, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Psalm 103. Here's a good one. Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. I mean, if it brings tears just your eyes hearing that, that's emotional. The Hebrew word here was used was raham, used in each of the above passages and often translated show mercy. And it's the word for compassion. God is loving. Well, everybody hits this one, right? There is a unique emphasis in the Bible on God's love. It is the love of God that is most closely connected to the gospel itself. And here's some 
Famous verses, Jeremiah 31, the Lord appeared to him from afar, saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. <clears throat> Micah 7, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions for the remnant of his inheritance? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. He will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. You will show faithfulness to Jacob and steadfast love to Abraham as you have sworn to our fathers from the days of old. And then there's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So God's love has a strong emotional element to it, does it not? We do a grave disservice to God when we say he loves without affection. We diminish the dignity of God's person when we relegate love to mere actions or goodwill. And such a definition of love is absolutely excluded by 1 Corinthians 13.3. Whatever fragmented notes of beautiful feelings may be found in our love, these are merely distant echoes of the thunderous symphony of God's love, says Borgman. In conclusion, this chapter is a very brief survey, but the texts speak for themselves. God is not a static being. Immutability does not mean static. He is dynamic, personal being, possessing within himself perfect knowledge, a perfect will, perfect emotions. We are made in the image and likeness of God, so there's our hope. And to understand ourselves, we must understand God. So that first chapter was about the immutability of God, but his emotional foundation. That was the character of God, chapter 1. Well, chapter 2 is a shorter chapter, and it's essentially the character of the living word and the written word. The Lord Jesus Christ is God in human flesh. Jonathan Edwards has a quote in this chapter. All the virtues of the Lamb of God, his humility, patience, meekness, submission, obedience, love, and compassion are exhibited before us in a manner that is most tending to move our affections. <clears throat> That's Jonathan Edwards. All right, the Lord Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, and that the Bible teaches us that he is the perfect reflection of his Father and of his divine nature. John 1.14, he is the word who became flesh. He is the image of the invisible God. Colossians, <clears throat> also in Colossians, in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. Hebrews, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And whoever has seen me, the Lord says, has seen the Father in John so let's talk about Christ's character, the character of the living word. The character of Christ stands as another biblical and theological pillar for understanding our emotions. The Lord Jesus had a perfect emotional makeup or constitution and perfect emotional expressions. I know these things go without saying. You need to lay this foundation to understand that. And he showed emotion or expressed feeling and what he exhibited was in perfect harmony with his deity. 
If our view of emotion is skewed, and generally it is, then we end up missing the rich example Christ is to us. If Christ, perfect God and perfect man, had and displayed perfect emotions, then we must pay special attention, because there's our model. John two, first uh, John two says, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. So that was the character of Christ. We, he's a reflection as we reflect God's glory. And we will see more of that next week in chapter three. The character of the Bible, character, the character of the written word as opposed to the living word. So where does that take us? Well, God communicates to us through the Bible. The Bible is God-breathed. We see that in 2 Timothy 3.16. And Borgman makes a really good point here. And maybe you, especially you guys are teachers or people who work in schools, or you communicate for a living. How someone communicates tells us much about that person. How you communicate also shows how you expect your listeners to respond. God communicates with passion and emotion in his word. Because if you, I don't know, I know the pastor has said that um, when he preaches, he doesn't necessarily look at anybody particularly. I spent a lot of my early corporate career as an instructor, a teacher, a trainer, uh, I, just, I always liked it. But the thing is, is that if you're a teacher, and some of you in here are or work in that situation, you know what it's like to be giving a lesson or communicating and to see or not see light bulbs going on over people's head, looking at their faces, do they get it? You are looking to see if people are awake. But you're getting it, right? You get it. It's like, okay. I, I see that it's having an effect, and uh, especially when I taught electronics in the Navy, I would bring up a particularly difficult technical point, and I would see, do you under, no, nobody gets it. <laughs> like, okay, let's go back to Ohm's Law, Ohm's. All right. Well, how you communicate also shows how you expect your listeners to respond. So God communicates with passion and emotion in his word, and such communication is designed to make us respond in like manner. Much of the Bible was written not merely to inform us, but to move us. I mean, just reading uh, some of these scriptures brings tears to your eyes. Those are godly emotions, by the way. That's supposed to happen. God communicates in a way that grips the heart and moves the emotions. Even in the prophetic portions of scripture, God speaks in a way that touches the heart. This is what he says in Isaiah 65 too. Love this one. This is a great, if you have the book, you saw it and you laughed. You go, in Isaiah 65 too, God says, I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good following their own devices. Why not just say, I have sent forth the general call which can be resisted, not the effectual call which cannot be resisted. Why that? Why use language that portrays pleading and imploring? Because God wants us to feel the truth. 
What am I going to do with you? So at the end of chapter 2, the conclusion says, The God of the Bible feels intensely his son as a perfect reflection of deity and the perfect embodiment of humanity felt deeply. As God communicates in his own word, he seeks to teach, to inform, <clears throat> excuse me, and to move us earnestly. We ought to learn to better understand and handle our emotions. We need to realize that our emotional state is an important part of us. No longer can we make excuses about our feelings or lack of feelings. Hi there, this is Austin Hetzler, the pastor of Christ the Rock Church of Elyria, Ohio. We at Christ the Rock are humbled and grateful to be a part of your sanctification today as you listen to this sermon. But at the same time, we want to encourage you to be a member of a good local church and not to allow online sermons to replace the local church and to benefit from the life of that church and to give your spiritual gifts back to that church. Having said that, our website is www.christrockchurch.com. If you go there, you can find sermons, blogs, and other resources as well as our location and service times. You can also listen to the sermons on Bible Thumping Wingnut, Podbean, iTunes, Google Play Music, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Stitcher. I, along with the membership of Christ the Rock Church, pray that this sermon will be a blessing to you.